Mary, of course, uh, is um, my tutor. I, I would not know how to shoot hogs w w w without Larry. Uh, he has, uh, you know, taught me everything I know. <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, he, he had deliberately turned uh, on the, the uh, scope so that I was shooting to uh, the left. Uh, so, you know. So, you know, anyway, uh, 60 years ago, I came to Dallas and went to Dallas Seminary. 60 years. Uh, and um, uh, 53 years, uh, well, yeah, 53 years later, I was in Houston uh, and uh, filled in and taught for three weeks, and uh, they asked me uh, to become the pastor of uh, a little Presbyterian church called Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church. You probably don't know this, but Dallas Seminary was started by Presbyterians. Uh, and uh, because uh, in 1928, the Northern Presbyterians and the Southern Presbyterians uh, had lost, I think, their theological moorings. And so a group in the North uh, formed Westminster Seminary, and a, a group in the South uh, formed uh, with First Presbyterian of uh, uh, First Pres Presbyterian Church, uh, William Anderson of downtown Presbyterian Church here, uh, and of course, uh, uh, Chafer was a Presbyterian. Dr. Walvard was a Presbyterian. Uh, and so the seminary was uh, quite Presbyterian for a while. In fact, of the first 300 graduates of the seminary, 150 went into the Presbyterian church. But then, uh, because of the stand of the uh, seminary uh, and because of its teaching on premillennialism and uh, the pre-trib rapture and a few other things uh, and dispensationalism, uh, the uh, Presbyterian Church uh, basically would not take Dallas Seminary people anymore. Uh, and some of you may not know this, but uh, uh, S. Lewis Johnson, who of course was uh, raised as a Presbyterian, uh, and he taught at Dallas Seminary, and he was teaching a Bible class at a Presbyterian church. He, he uh, resigned, uh, and uh, the group of people uh, started a new church which was called the Independent Presbyterian Church of Dallas. And it became eventually Northwest Presbyterian Unaffiliated. And then it became Northwest Bible Church. So there's a long Presbyterian uh, connection. My own uh, background as a child, uh, I was uh, raised uh, in a family that wasn't uh, pagan, but they, you know, weren't big churchgoers. Uh, and I went to a summer camp and became a uh, uh, Christian. Uh, I came back from camp and asked my family if we could have prayer at meals. And they sort of looked at me like, there must be something wrong here. <laughs> and eventually I went uh, to the church, which was the family church, was called the Evangelical and Reformed Church, sort of a semi-Presbyterian type church. 
And uh, the doctrinal statement of that church was the Heidelberg Catechism. Very, very fine uh, catechism. Uh, and so my, my uh, background was sort of Presbyterian. When I went down and took over this Presbyterian church, um, uh, by the way, it's no longer a Presbyterian church. It's called Bethel Church. It was called Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church. And then eventually over the years, uh, it became uh, Bethel Bible Church. Now it's just Bethel Church. Uh, and uh, one of the things I did, because uh, most people who are in churches that have a confession have no idea about the doctrinal statement. And so uh, each Sunday... In the bulletin, I used to have a section of the doctrinal statement. Uh, and I would uh, take five, ten minutes and explain uh, the doctrine of the church. Uh, and there was supposed to be uh, an insert in the bulletin in the today's, but it's not, it didn't make it. Uh, but this is the section that uh, I decided to use. And so let us go over this a little bit. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, Section 5. Chapter 1 is about the Bible. Uh, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of Holy Scripture, of the Holy Scripture. And the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts that, you know, 30 five people worked on this thing, and yet it, is, it has a unity. Uh, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, Notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Now that is a mouthful. Uh, it might even be one sentence. But anyway... Uh, Presbyterians, I think, were the first uh, to really uh, put a stress uh, on the inward work of the Holy Spirit by and with the Word of God. And this arose in the Reformation. In fact, uh, you can find uh, that there is a progress of the revelation of God in doctrine. Uh, and before Calvin and before Luther particularly before Calvin, uh, no one uh, really articulated this doctrine, that the internal work of the Holy Spirit by and with the Word of God is where our persuasion is. Now, in the Reformation, of course, the question was, what is the authority? Uh, and in religion, that is the basic question. What is the authority? What do you believe and why do you believe it? Well, the Roman Catholic Church said the authority is in the church. And in fact, Augustine said 
He would not have believed the gospel unless the church had told him about it. So the reformers had to wrestle with this question. Uh, is the authority in the church? Is the authority in a council? Is the, the authority in a man? Uh, and um, Calvin, in his institutes, if you uh, would ever uh, want to do some interesting reading, you read that the first uh, nine sections uh, of chapter 1, the first five sections talk about why do we believe in God? And then uh, the next section, 5 through 9, why do we believe the Bible? Uh, so we're going to work a little bit on this. If somebody you know, says, what did you study at church today? Uh, you, you say HSC. We studied HSC. Holy Spirit Certainty. Our persuasion uh, is uh, from the Word of God and the Spirit of God. When you start reading the Bible carefully, uh, and you start with Jesus, as he begins his ministry, you may remember, and I won't read all the passages, they asked me uh, to have Carl read uh, the scripture. I said, well, I'm going to We'd be referring to about 12 passages. And, and so we picked the longest one. Uh, so Carl would read uh, the one that uh, deals a lot with the, the theology of the work of the Spirit of God. But you remember when Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4, uh, he goes to a synagogue where he had been brought up. And uh, in those days, the men of the church would read a portion of the law and a portion of the prophets. And then if somebody had some kind of an exposition, they would get up and speak. And that's how synagogues worked. Well, Jesus comes to the synagogue. Uh, he is uh, uh, he's seated. Uh, and uh, uh, he stands up and unrolls a scroll that they give him, which is the scroll of Isaiah. And as he unrolls the scroll, he starts reading. And he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And that's the, the, the critical word, he anointed me, uh, to preach uh, the good news. Uh, and Jesus then goes along and reads the rest of that section and he stops his reading in the middle of a verse. Uh, that he, he has come to proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord. The rest of the verse goes on to say, and the day of judgment. Well, but Jesus has come in his first coming to announce the day of grace. And he sits down, and of course, everybody's sort of wondering, he didn't read the whole passage. And why did he stop in the middle? Uh, and he says, today, this has been fulfilled. And then he begins to explain. And uh, it's sort of strange, because the passage goes on to say, people were really sort of amazed at the words of grace that are coming from him. 
But then, when you read the rest of the passage, they take him out and try to kill him. You know, it's sort of amazing how people could hear him speak and yet not really perceive what he's saying. And then when you uh, uh, move on a little bit further, he starts doing some miracles. Uh, and uh, and I'll, I'll just read a couple passages to, uh, you know, in the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, <coughs> when his family heard this, you would think, you would think that Mary and Joseph and his brothers, they would certainly be, you know, tuned in to what he's doing. But here's what the text says. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him. This is uh, Mark uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 21. Because they said, he's out of his mind. Well, let's, how, how could Mary, who has given birth to Jesus, be so obtuse? Uh, you know, she, you remember when she comes in, uh, in uh, when he's 12 years old, he's in the, in the, the temple talking to people, and uh, they, they are not clued in on what he's doing. The passage goes on. Uh, he speaks. People are rebelling against him right at the start. <clears throat> they were saying about Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. Others are saying, he has Beelzebub in him. That's he's doing demons by uh, Beelzebub. And his family come later on, and they gather around where he's speaking. And it says, uh, it's, re it's reported to him, your mother and your, your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. Jesus says, who are my, my mother and brothers? And looking about at the people who are sitting in the circle, he says, these are the people who are my mother and my brothers. They are the ones who are doing the will of God. You go on and you keep reading, uh, for example, the Gospel of John. Uh, John, of course, uh, deals with you know, really the theology of uh, uh, <coughs> what happens. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, of course, uh, does miracles. And uh, the people don't necessarily perceive. They, they, they glorify God because something unusual is happening. But, for example, the feeding of the 5,000, you would think, well, he fed 5,000 people. Well, the response of the people was, We've got to come and take this guy and make him a king. And Jesus withdraws. Next day, he goes to a synagogue in, in uh, Capernaum, and he speaks uh, on uh, the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. Moses, it is true, fed the people in the wilderness. But I am feeding you with a different kind of bread. Not the, uh, the bread that you ate and were satisfied, but I'm the bread that has come down from heaven. And they start, they hear him speaking, but they're not very perceptive. The Jews started complaining about him because he says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Joseph, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? Well, I mean, you have to, uh, you know, the incarnation was not really something that they really expected. And the fact that he has two natures, he's a true human, but he, has, uh, he is the son of God who has come to dwell among us. It took a while for people to understand what's really going on. Jesus goes on to say, stop complaining. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he, he again quotes from Isaiah. By the way, if you want to understand the New Testament, you better read Isaiah once a week uh, because uh, there's an awful lot in the book of Isaiah. For example, Jesus quotes one little verse uh, from Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, and uh, he's quoting it here. He says, it was written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. In other words, the things that I'm saying to you, you're not going to understand that unless God does a work in your heart. And by the way, if you understand the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophesied that in the days of the Messiah, God is going to teach people. And eventually, when the whole new covenant is fully in force, they will all know me from the least unto the greatest because there will be that work of the Spirit of God in people's hearts. Well, at this particular point, uh, people are not really getting it. Uh, and when you get to John chapter 10, uh, Jesus uh, uses a way of speaking. He says he's the good shepherd. And he says, you know, just as a shepherd uh, goes to a sheepfold, and they may be in this sheepfold, five different flocks. And by the way, it just happened recently in Israel. The Israelis uh, had uh, taken a bunch of sheep uh, and goats uh, from a couple of uh, uh, groups of uh, Palestinians. And uh, they were maybe 150 in uh, an enclosure. And this young Palestinian boy says, I want to I want to take our sheep. They said, well, how can you tell which are yours? And he took a little flute, and he started playing on the flute, and he walked out, and his flock followed him. Jesus uses this to describe his sheep. He says, the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice, that is, the shepherd, and people who are hearing him talk say, many were saying, he has a demon and he's crazy. Why listen to him? Others were saying, are these the words of someone demon-possessed? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So then Jesus goes on to say, you don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, no one can snatch them out of my hand. The response of uh, the people who hear Jesus is what? They picked up stones, to, uh, rocks to stone him. 
I mean, people did not know what he is talking about. Uh, so, Jesus, of course, is preparing his disciples for what's coming, but they're a little slow. Uh, you might remember that three specific times he tells them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be rejected, uh, and the scribes and Pharisees are going to deliver me over to be crucified. I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to rise again. They probably thought, you know, this guy's a great leader. He's, he really can teach, uh, but he's got this, you know, persecution complex. He's got this one little problem. Uh, you know, he would make a great guy if we could just make sure he doesn't talk this negative stuff always. So he keeps talking to him. He says, well, in John 14, 15, and 16, I'm going away. Where are you going? Well, I'm going to the Father. Well, I'm the way to the Father. They, they, they don't know what he's talking about. Uh, and he says, well, later on you're going to sort of put it together. Uh, I'm going to send somebody, a counselor, the Holy Spirit. And the Father will send him in my name. And he's going to teach you uh, and remind you of everything that I've told you. You remember uh, years later, John is writing a gospel. And uh, he says uh, in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, we didn't understand what he's talking about, but we realized he was talking about the temple of his body. Uh, but they didn't catch it at that point. But years later, they understood. The Spirit was teaching them. John 15, uh, he says in John 15, when the counselor comes, by the way, the, the word that is translated here is called the paraclete. And if you look at different translations, uh, they have comforter, they have paraclete, they have uh, counselor. Uh, they, they have a hard time figuring out and when some people were doing, Wycliffe Bible translators were doing the translation uh, in one African tribe, uh, they tried to explain and figure out what word they would use. And the guy explained what the, the counselor does. Uh, and uh, uh, the person who was helping with the translation said, well, we would call a person who does that a particular word, the person who falls down alongside of us. And they thought, well, that was the weirdest thing. And uh, they explained that in this particular culture, people made their living by going on safaris and carrying uh, a, 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 a whole load of stuff. And if you got sick on the safari, you probably fell by the side and people went on. And if somebody picked you up and carried you to your destination. He was the person who falls down alongside and carries you to the goal. So that's the word they use to describe the ministry of the Spirit. He's the one who picks us up and moves us along. So the counselor, he's going to be the one who's going to come. 
in the first verse I quoted you, uh, the Father's going to send him. Here it says, when the counselor comes, the one I send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And this, of course, is where you get the sermon title of today. Uh, he is the faithful witness, the truthful witness. And then in John 16, he says, If I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, of course, Jesus is crucified. Uh, he rises from the dead. Uh, and uh, he then uh, commissions uh, the apostles to go forth and to preach and to teach. So we come to John chapter 8. Uh, John chapter 8 is uh, maybe, uh, we might call it the Holy Spirit chapter. Uh, you know, when you're dying uh, and you have a choice of what people read, maybe that's the verse you should have them read. Uh, uh, the, the Holy Spirit chapter. 369 times in the New Testament, it talks about the Spirit of God. It also talks about our heart 159 times. And we're going to be talking a couple passages about the Spirit working in our hearts. In uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, <clears throat> verse 14. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. The leading of the Spirit of God, of course, in this context is uh, the Spirit leads us to fight against sin. He says, uh, all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. So Paul has never seen these people. Uh, he's never been to Rome. But he writes to them and he tells them about the work of the Spirit of God. When you became a believer, the Holy Spirit came into your life. You may not have known about it very much, uh, but this is what happened. In fact, when you get to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, or uh, verse uh, 21, he talks about uh, we've been given the Spirit as the down payment of our salvation. He's going to be with us forever. He has sealed us, and he's also anointed us, is what the text says. So here it says, in a wonderful passage, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery, but you received a spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, of course, is uh, a word that is not common in our language, but it's uh, an Aramaic word. It's a word that uh, was used by uh, children to refer to their father, Abba. Uh, it occurs three times in the New Testament. It occurs in this passage. It occurs in, first, uh, in Galatians chapter 4, which we'll go to in a minute, but also in... The Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is on his knees uh, in chapter 14 uh, in Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross, he cries out, Abba, Father. Uh, one of the distinctive things is Jewish people normally 
uh, before Jesus did not call God Father, other than that he is the father of the nation in the sense that he created the nation. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus taught his disciples to pray our Father, the Father Unser, uh, as the Germans call it, our Father. And here we are taught by the Spirit of God to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Not only does he use the word son, but children. Uh, we are born again by the Spirit of God, uh, and we are God's children. And as children, we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Flip over to Galatians uh, chapter 4. <clears throat> Galatians 4, 4. By the way, I, I couldn't do this, this, this sermon uh, at the Presbyterian Church where I go to because nobody ever has a Bible. <laughs> so you can't say flip open. Uh, and uh, they don't even have their iPads with the Bible on. <clears throat> Terrible. Uh, Galatians 4. <clears throat> Wonderful passage. Uh, you can see why, uh, why Luther loved the book of Galatians. His, his wife, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> he used to, to alternate uh, calling uh, his wife uh, and the book of Galatians is what he was wedded to. Wedded to the book of Galatians. Verse 4 of chapter 4. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Wonderful passage again. The work of the Spirit of God within us. One other passage. I, I could go on a few more, but I'm, 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 uh, Larry has told me I have to finish before the Super Bowl starts. So uh, I better uh, just hurry on. 1 John uh, chapter 2. I'll just read a couple little things in, in chapter 2. Uh, the issue, 30 years after uh, Paul was killed in Rome, John was still ministering, evidently, in Asia Minor. And uh, whenever God does a work, Satan does a work. Uh, and uh, there was a gigantic split that took place uh, in the church at that time. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But the very fact that they went out showed that they were not with us. They that are of God hear us, that is, the apostles. Uh, they are of the world, therefore the world accepts them and loves them. He, he here says this in 1 John. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. 
This is John 2, verse 20. In verse 27, the anointing you have received from him remains in you. You don't need anyone to teach you. That is, there's a different kind of teaching that goes on internally. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, but just as he has taught you, remain in him. And then in the last chapter of the Gospel uh, of 1 John, uh, a very difficult, by the way, I, I, let me tell you something. Uh, there are certain books of the Bible that are difficult. Uh, a lot of people don't read the book of Revelation because they, in fact, Luther and Calvin, they didn't really like that book. Uh, Calvin wrote commentary on every New Testament book, didn't touch the book of Revelation. But I think the most difficult Old Testament book is the book of Song of Solomon. Just try reading it and tell me what it means. Uh, and I think 1 John is the most difficult New Testament book because for three reasons. Uh, we don't know the historical background very well. We don't know, um, uh, he uses abstract language like love, light, fellowship, uh, and uh, he doesn't use the kind of connectives that would maybe uh, enable us to outline the book very clearly. When I was a young student 59 years ago learning Greek, uh, the teacher who taught me Greek said, uh, you know, this is a difficult book to outline. And he gave us 24 outlines of First John. And then he proceeded to give us his, which was the number 25. <laughs> so I rest my case that it's not an easy book to outline. Okay. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, he's the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means, but probably the water refers to uh, his beginning of ministry uh, at the baptism, his baptism, and the blood refers, of course, to his death. The passage goes on. The Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 9. If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. Karl Barth said, only God can explain God to us. Uh, and Calvin says the same. Uh, and uh, the passage that we read in 1 uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 2 uh, talks about the Spirit of God is the only one that is competent to give us the proper testimony about the Son of God and His Word. The one who believes in the Son has the, the testimony within him. Okay, uh, let's sort of wrap this up. Uh, we're talking about HSC, Holy Spirit Confidence. Uh, not everybody necessarily automatically has it. Why? Well, first of all, there's 
per personalities. Some people, when they wake up in the morning, they're not sure they're alive. Uh, their, their personalities is weird. Uh, <coughs> there's also uh, people who have been affected by false teaching. That is, uh, they've been taught that believers are not supposed to have assurance. Uh, there are a number, really only the Reformed denominations have believed uh, that there is uh, the privilege of having the assurance of your salvation. Uh, and the reason, uh, I suppose, is because uh, they have stressed what the New Testament teaches, that the last judgment has been brought into human history, and Jesus Christ has forgiven our sins, and therefore we don't have to wait until the last judgment to find out whether we're saved or lost. So the people who are brought up in, say, an Arminian or a non-reformed tradition, they don't believe that they're supposed to know that they're saved. They think, well, I hope I'm going to be saved. I hope if I live a good life, I will be saved. They don't have it clear about the doctrines of grace. So there's also, there can be a person is immature. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, if you read that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and chapter 3 very carefully, he says, we do speak a wisdom among mature people. But I couldn't address you as mature. You're babes. You don't know, uh, and of course babies don't know a whole lot of doctrine. Uh, so he goes on to say, I take it uh, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> enables people when they hear the gospel. Maybe the first time you hear it, you might think, that's a weird thing about a crucified Galilean carpenter that somehow he's been raised from the dead. I sat down with a, a, a young man, Jewish, and I went through verse by verse through Isaiah chapter 53, which to me is as, clean, as plain as the nose on your face. He didn't understand anything. When I was a pastor, I used to think I was a fairly clear pastor. Uh, I was teaching the book of Ephesians one night. Uh, and over a period of six months, uh, <clears throat> this man in the congregation was a dentist. Uh, and uh, he, brought, he came uh, every Sunday night because we had something for the kids. And uh, the kids were in there, and he sat there. And he got a heart attack. And I visited him in the hospital, and uh, he said <clears throat> he became a believer. And then subsequently he said to me, you know, I sat there and listened to you for six months, and I didn't understand a single thing you said. <laughs> I thought I was making it clear, but obviously the Holy Spirit had not yet been working in his heart. And he subsequently was converted. So I think what happens to us is the Holy Spirit enables us to understand that the gospel is true. Then I think we sort of move on uh, that uh, uh, the next stage maybe the Holy Spirit enables us to see that Christ died for me. It's one thing to believe that Jesus died and rose again, but it's another thing to understand, well, he died for me to take away my sin. 
I take it that's the work of the Holy Spirit if you come to believe that. Then <coughs> you might move on a little further after you've come to believe that. You may come to believe by the work of the Spirit that, that this book, this book, God speaks through this word. And then you finally might come to the realization, I'm a child of God. And I think, you know, uh, even the, the Westminster Confession goes on to say, well, not everybody immediately has this, but it's the privilege of the believer to know that he has Holy Spirit certainty. Let's bow together. Gracious Father, we are thankful that you do work. And we pray for each one in this room uh, that they would, might come to the realization that the gospel is, or the good news, is not foolishness. Uh, it is the power of God unto salvation. And that Jesus Christ died for you and that your sins are forgiven, and the issue of the judgment for you is over because Christ died for you. And we're thankful that your word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it gives us life. And Father, we're thankful that not only uh, you have loved us, and forgiven our sins, but you've adopted us. Uh, and we are now your children, and you've promised that we shall be heirs with your son and joint heirs with Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.